Welcome back to the Napoleon Show, episode number seven. David Markham, welcome. Good to be here again, Cameron. How you been? Been very well, thank you, mate. Yourself? Not bad. Thanks a lot. We've uh, had a little delay here while I went off to a funeral and a wedding, which, of course, sounds like a movie, come to think of it. Uh, but I'm glad to be back uh, back in the saddle again, and, and off we go to Egypt. Off we go to Egypt. So we left Napoleon in the last episode. He'd pretty much finished the Italian campaign. He had uh, signed a treaty, the Treaty of Campo Formio with the Austrians. He was a bit of a hero. And then he heads back to Paris. Now... I, I, in reading and preparing for this episode over the last few weeks, I, I'm not really sure. I'm going to be quite honest with you. I'm hoping you can help me through this episode because there's a bunch of things that I'm not sure about. Let me tell you how I read it and you can correct me. And by the way, there's a bunch of things I'm not sure about either uh, in, in this and in any number of other areas, so don't feel too bad. <laughs> okay. So it, it, it seems to me that at the end of the Italian campaign, Napoleon is fairly disenchanted with the directory and goes back to Paris, I suspect, with with plans of trying to insert himself into the government. But once he gets there and he starts talking with uh, Talleyrand and he takes the temperature of the situation, he either believes or he is convinced by Talleyrand that the time is not right for Napoleon to make his political move, and hence he starts looking for what else he should be doing, because as he says in some of his letters, uh, glory is fickle and fleeting, and the people are forgetting about him, so if he's not going to make his play for uh, you know the, the, the political power, at this stage, he needs to go off and fight another battle. Well, the the second half of your analysis is, is certainly correct. Very clearly, uh, if Napoleon isn't going to, to do something major in Paris, he needs to find something major to do elsewhere, and, and it turns out there's going to be two options presented to him. Uh, <clears throat> the first half of the, of the analysis is always the big question. It's uh, No one really knows for sure if Napoleon was, was really uh, interested in or thinking seriously about making some kind of a of a, of a move, uh, he was wildly popular. Certainly, the the people literally uh, were thronging him in the streets. He was invited to every kind of of event you can imagine. Uh, he was uh, made a, a member of the Institute of Sciences and Arts of France. <coughs> Excuse me. And, uh, you know, which was a, a, a really, really high intellectual honor, uh, well-deserved, I might add. So, so he had all sorts of things going for him, and we'll talk about the directory's point of view on that in a minute. But from Napoleon's point of view, whether or not all of this added up to a, a good opportunity or an opportunity best passed by is, is really pretty speculative because we don't have any good hard evidence what he would have been willing to do had, for example, someone come to him as they would a year or so later and, and suggest to him that maybe he could be part of a, a coup d'etat. Mm. But anyway, what, whatever his secret intentions were, uh, the main topic of discussion when he decides that he needs to go back out on campaign seems to be initially uh, an invasion of England. The directory want him to think about an invasion of England, but he decides they're not ready. 
Well, that's that's well, once again that's correct. Uh, uh, Napoleon uh, recognized uh, that probably some kind of another campaign was was needed. The arch enemy of of France at, in, in this period of time and and, and frequently in, uh, through history, of course, was England. There needed to be some way found to defeat England, either militarily or politically or economically. It didn't really matter which one uh, was was accomplished, but something had to be done to force England to some kind of a peace treaty. So the the idea was that the French, who had been very successful militarily in Italy and Germany, uh, would in fact invade. England. This is not a new concept by any means, uh, but with a a, a brave hero, a great success, a national hero like Napoleon Bonaparte, uh, maybe there was hope that it would succeed this time, that it could be accomplished. Uh, But of course, as as, as they say, the idea just wouldn't float, uh, literally, because the French army may have been more than ready to invade England, but the French Navy was not. Uh, the French and Spanish uh, fleets combined were simply not sufficient to guarantee a safe passage for troop transports across the English Channel. And by February of, of 1798, Napoleon finally realized that it just wasn't going to happen, so he writes the, the Directoire and, and says uh, that it's going to take really a lot longer to get ready for such an invasion, at least a year, probably more, uh, and that if they really want to defeat England, they're going to have to come up with some other way. Now, at this point, Napoleon and the Directory really have the same goal in mind, although for very different reasons. Napoleon wants another campaign, as, as you just suggested. Uh, if, if you're not out there making a name for yourself, after a while the crowds begin to say, Napoleon who? Or what's he done for us lately? Uh, it was, that, was, that was not going to happen for a while, but if he just hung around as a, as a general without much of anything to do in, in Paris, you know, his constant round of parties wasn't going to, to, to get the job done for him. Maybe even more importantly, is the attitude of the directory. The directory had to have extremely mixed emotions about Napoleon Bonaparte. On the one hand, of course, they were delighted at his success in defeating the Austrians, enforcing a peace treaty, uh, and ending the kind of, of conflict uh, that, that was a, a disaster to the economy of, of France, although having said that, I'm, I'm not sure it was a complete disaster because he was careful to send a steady stream of booty home, art treasures, gold, money, and, and, and so on. But from the directory standpoint, the real problem was Bonaparte himself. Here he was, very popular, a national hero, streets be you know, renamed after him, the street where his home was on was renamed Rue de la Victoire. Uh, and, and, and so on. And the directory is, is a very insecure and unstable uh, group of uh, gentlemen. They know very well that their ability to hang on to power is tenuous at best and that someone like Napoleon, should he be so inclined, 
might very well be able to take power from them. So from their standpoint, get him out of town and get, and do it now. So sending him off to invade England was a wonderful idea. With any luck, he would succeed. With even better luck, he would succeed and be killed in the effort, uh, and and thus be eliminated from from the program uh, and from competition. But when England wasn't going to work out, something else had to replace it. And as we all know, of course, that something else was Egypt. Now, I've got to be honest, the, the whole Egyptian campaign is always stuck in my craw a little bit. There's a good American uh, term for you. <laughs> I, have, I have no idea what a craw is, but, uh, you know, it's stuck in it. None it, of us have a clue what a craw is, except three <laughs> farmers in Iowa somewhere probably do. <laughs> now, you know, you and I have talked on the show many times about the fact that Napoleon didn't start wars he took wars that were already happening and he went and you know brought them to a a, a, a peace treaty typically but egypt uh, there's a couple of uh, battles fought under napoleon's name which stand out against that general rule this is one of them now france to the best of my knowledge wasn't at war with egypt at the time there were really no good reasons uh, military reasons for invading Egypt at the time except that it was there <laughs> and it was also a pathway to India which obviously was controlled by the British and, and was very important to the British uh, economically but it, it and then uh, you know I, I guess the whole what happened in Egypt is a bit disappointing as well but do you, I, I've been reading through about the 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 reasons for invading Egypt and I've got you know, I've got this in Napoleon's sort of his own words here it says the exhibition to Egypt had three aims to establish on the Nile a French colony which would prosper without slaves and serve France in place of the Republic of Santo Domingo and all the Sugar Islands to open a market for our manufactures in Africa Arabia and Syria and supply our commerce with all the production of those vast countries and to gain Egypt as a base from which an army of 60,000 men would set out to the Indus India to excite the Marathas and oppressed people of those extensive regions to insurrections so, <laughs> it, it, to me, that kind of sounds like uh, your current president talking about liberating Iraq. It, it sounds as falla- fallacious <laughs> an excuse as anything. Well, we, we don't want to go uh, there. I, I suspect you and I have a very, very similar view as to how wise a decision it was for for our president to decide to to, to make a preemptive strike uh, in, in Iraq. Uh, n- nevertheless, as far as Egypt, Egypt is concerned, that might be what Napoleon wrote, but that really isn't what was fundamentally uh, at, at the base of, of the Egyptian campaign. And, and I also have to point out to you, uh, Cameron, that while you may say that Egypt sort of stands out as a, an example against our basic argument that people were generally bringing wars to Napoleon, not the other way around, I do need to remind our listeners that at this point we're not talking about First Council Bonaparte and certainly not the Emperor uh, uh, Napoleon. We are talking about a, a General Bonaparte who, if his superiors, uh, the Directory, 
uh, order him to go someplace, uh, he has very little choice. So while he may or may not have had very much to do with selecting this campaign, it was ultimately a decision not by him, but, but by the French government. That said, there was in fact a pretty decent reason from the standpoint of French policy uh, for uh, and sending uh, troops into Egypt. And it all had to do, of course, with, with Great Britain. The idea clearly was to say, okay, if we can't defeat Britain militarily uh, by a direct invasion, let's go to plan B, which is to find a way to cripple her economically. Now, we'll talk much later about another unsuccessful effort to cripple uh, <laughs> Great Britain economically, namely the Continental System. Uh, but this was sort of a, a precursor to the Continental System. Let's go to an area which is critical to the British trade uh, system, uh, particularly, in fact, uh, its trade with India and, and, and its Mediterranean bases and so on. Take away British influence and 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 thus strike a, a blow both economically and psychologically uh, because the, the, the British and the French, of course, routinely competed for uh, preeminence in the Mediterranean. The French have the advantage of having a very long Mediterranean coastline. The, the British uh, have, have the advantage of, of Gibraltar. Uh, and, and, and this is, in you know, some senses, a part of that uh, ongoing uh, competition. Uh, nevertheless, the idea was that by invading Egypt, uh, France would, would strike this blow uh, at England. And, of course, from the directory standpoint, it would uh, get Bonaparte out of town. Uh, my personal belief is that it was Charles-Maurice uh, 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 Talleyrand, uh, the foreign minister at the time, who was probably the most likely instigator of the idea. But to be fair, both Napoleon and the directory doubtless latched onto it very quickly because it ironically served both of their ends, even though their ends were somewhat opposite from each other. And I can kind of see it fitting into Napoleon's grand romantic vision of himself as the new Caesar and the new Alexander. Obviously, Alexander in particular, um, and, and Caesar as well, but uh, you know, Alexander and Caesar had a big influence on Egypt. And you know, Napoleon at this point in time, obviously starting to see himself in as, as their uh, natural successor in many ways. Oh, abs- absolutely. No question about it. Uh, he, he began to see himself as, as at least in some way, emulating uh, Alexander the Great. Now, the interesting thing, obviously, and, and probably the, the most redeeming feature of the Egyptian campaign was, and I believe, uh, you know, that the idea of invading Egypt had been around for quite a long time, for, you know, for 30-odd for years in France, and, and a, a lot of the reasons that we've just talked about had been talked about in France for that period of time, but I believe it was Napoleon's idea to take the scientists and the artists and really... Do again emulate Alexander by taking the scholars along. Well, we're we're getting slightly ahead of ourselves, but 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 you're absolutely correct. Uh, the 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 single biggest uh, symbol of the Egyptian campaign was the bringing along of 
of around 167 scholars from various different fields, people like Gaspard Mong and, and Claude uh, uh, Louis uh, Bertoulet, uh, a, a lot of uh, scientists, engineers, uh, cartographers, map makers, artists, lots of artists, uh, spectacular artists, and and their study of Egypt, their recording of the monuments, of the hieroglyphs, and so on, and of course, ultimately, their accidental discovery, but immediate recognition of its value uh, of the Rosetta Stone, is what opens the door to modern Egyptology. So, whether or not one can uh, you know, believe that the campaign was a success or a failure, and there are certainly arguments on both sides of that, uh, in terms of the under, Western understanding of Egypt, of Egypt, there is no question whatsoever uh, that the campaign was a spectacular success. There was a, a fabulous uh, book of engravings uh, produced uh, uh, that came out uh, beginning while Napoleon was still in power and continuing on later, uh, and all sorts of other Egyptian memorabilia, uh, Egyptian revival styles and clothing and in furniture and jewelry and other decorative arts uh, became quite the rage uh, during the time of the consulate and the empire. And, and then later again, and, and when Louis Napoleon becomes Napoleon III, you see uh, Egyptian revival uh, once more. And, and, and Cameron, if I may, let me take this opportunity to direct those people who may be in the New York City uh, vicinity between now and and October or November, I'm not quite sure when it will end because they've just extended it, the Dahesh uh, Museum, I believe that's D-A-H-E-S-C-H, Museum uh, in New York City on Manhattan, very close to Tiffany's and Central Park, has a wonderful uh, exhibition on the Egyptian campaign with artifacts and many, many, many plates from the uh, publication I just mentioned these great big superfolio size engravings of, of Egyptian uh, artifacts and temples and so on. I was honored to contribute uh, three or four items from my collection uh, of snuff boxes to to the exhibit. So if you're going to be uh, in the New York City area, uh, do plan on going to the Daesh Museum, and they're putting out a, a, a little catalog on it, which will be out in, in a couple of months, I think. And if you can't go to the museum, you might want to consider ordering the catalog because it's uh, it's quite spectacular. And for the people who are listening to the show several years from now, <laughs> this show was recorded in uh, June of 2006. So I'm sorry you missed it. <laughs> yes, exactly. Well, they may not have missed it. This may bring back fond memories. <laughs> so um, the reason I mentioned the scholars going is that Egypt at the time, if I understand correctly, was kind of l- uh, pretty much an independent state, loosely controlled by the Sultan of Turkey, and didn't really have a lot to do with Western Europe. I mean, there hadn't been a lot of you know interaction between the two parties, which was why, as a scientific uh, expedition, this had uh, such a major importance, correct? It was very isolated. It was uh, very mysterious, if, if, if you will. It was supposed to be controlled by uh, the... 
Turks, uh, but the, the Mamelukes, which were an independent uh, warrior tribe, basically, from the Republic, what is today the Republic of Georgia, from the Caucasus, uh, had had really sort of taken over and, and, and were no longer paying very much attention to the Sultan. And that was the theoretical uh, reason why the the French were going over there. They they in fact Talleyrand was supposed to take a message to to Turkey, explaining that the French had no interest in controlling Egypt. They were simply wanting to reestablish Turkey's control uh, of of this rather far flung colony. Uh, Talleyrand, of course, being uh, the duplicitous so-and-so that, that he routinely <laughs> was when it comes to Napoleon, uh, somehow didn't ever get around to telling uh, the Turks about this. And so, as we'll discuss uh, later, the Sultan sends not one, uh, not one, but two armies to, to try to throw the French out because he sees the, the French invasion as an affront. But to go back to your original point, yes, it was a very isolated, very mysterious, uh, almost no one uh, knew anything really about it. Uh, and, and once the, the floodgates of knowledge were opened by this uh, exhibition, or rather, excuse me, by this invasion, and the floodgates are also opened by this exhibition in the Daesh, but uh, as I said earlier, the fascination uh, was overwhelming, and it continued for a very, very long time. And, and a lot of the Egyptian historians uh, with, with whom I've talked uh, will, will also tell you that they, they really sort of re- begin the, the, the modern period of, of Egypt, where Egypt becomes more part of the rest of the world, if you will, uh, as dating to the time of the, uh, the French invasion. Even though they may not have liked the French invasion, they <laughs> recognize that, that that certainly was a major turning point in Egyptian history. Of course, there's a, there's a classic book by a contemporary Egyptian historian, Al-Jabati, called mm-hmm. uh, Napoleon in Egypt, Al-Jabati's Chronicle of the French Occupation, which is, a, book. Yeah, which is a terrific first-hand account from the other side of this uh, you know, sudden arrival of these Western powers marching into Egypt, which really you know, uh, gives a completely different side of the story. Anyway, so as you say, uh, Talleyrand uh, somehow forgets to pass on that message to the Sultan. Anyway, Napoleon doesn't know about that. He, he sets off um, uh, with his army with... Uh, how many ships did he have? I had that written down here somewhere. Oh, you would ask me something like that. I don't. I don't have the number of ships in front of me either right now. I'm sad to tell you, it I will shock. I mean, shock 13. our listeners. Our listeners to know that Markham does not have every single little detail I, instantly I, at his fingertips. I, I did get it out of your book, but anyway, it was um, <laughs> thir- thirteen. Good. Thirteen ships of the line, four frigates, and hundreds of troop transports carrying thirty-five thousand men. Extremely well said. So, <laughs> so it, I mean, that was a fairly major force to uh, take, uh, first of all, across the waters, as you said, that the, the British Navy, controlled by Lord uh, Nelson at the time, was, uh, you know, they had to get through Nelson's fleet to get there in the first place. Well, that wasn't as hard as you think. Uh, it's one thing for Nelson's fleet to control uh, the, the English Channel. It is quite another for a, 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 a fleet of whatever size uh, to control the Mediterranean. So finding Napoleon's 
fleet, as it were, and as you say, there there were what we might think of, of as quite a, a fairly large number of, of ships, uh, uh, several hundred if you count the transports, uh, carrying the 35,000 men. Nevertheless, no one knows exactly when they left. No one knows exactly the route they're going to take. Uh, Nelson's zigzagging around. He, he very nearly intercepts Napoleon a couple of times. Uh, but, you know, it's just, it would have been, you know, pure luck is, is, is good as Nelson was. And I have a, an enormous respect for Admiral Lord Nelson. Uh, nevertheless, for him to have caught up with Napoleon when Napoleon was at sea would have been to a very large extent, uh, uh, dumb luck. Uh, and it would have been for any admiral. Although they did know they were coming, uh, according to Al Jabadi, about ten days before the French arrived, the British arrived, saying, "Are there any French here? <laughs> are, well, are you sure. hiding? Are you hiding any French?" <laughs> yeah. Well, well, no. There's no question. That, of course, the, the 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 British knew. The British have spies everywhere. You can't you can't put together a a force like that along the coast of France, even though they tried to hide it as best they could and they, they had it in different ports and it left from different places. But the fact of the matter is both the French and the, the British had a, a very good spy network set up uh, and, and were generally aware of major movements. And so when Napoleon sets sail, uh, the word gets out. But just where is he going exactly? How is he going to get there? Uh, that's... Uh, that's not necessarily uh, well known. They didn't necessarily know, for example, that that Napoleon would uh, would go to the island of Malta and and uh, take uh, take control uh, of that island uh, from the Knights of Saint John. But but he does that. He goes to Malta. Uh, he 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 quickly takes uh, uh, over that island without uh, much of a, a fight at all. Uh, they they surrendered. Uh, uh, immediately, uh, Napoleon sends the Knights of St. John back to France, gives them a nice pension, says, thank you all very much, but, but we'll take over now. Uh, Malta is a, a critical uh, transport uh, stop-off and, and a, an area critical to the control of the Mediterranean. Uh, it will be central to the breakdown of peace between England and France uh, uh, during the, the period of, of peace that they do have, the Peace of Amiens, which we'll get to goodness knows how many episodes from now. <laughs> uh, but uh, uh, Napoleon takes over, and by the way, uh, it, it's, a, it's classic Bonaparte. He says, okay, you're under French control now, but we're going to make you an independent little country. He, he organizes uh, the government institutes the kind of reforms that we'll see elsewhere, gives religious freedom to the Jews, which was something that was uh, unheard of uh, in, in much of Europe in those days, abolishes slavery, pitches out the, the feudal system, writes a constitution, uh, reorganizes education, reorganizes the legal system, uh, shades of the Code Napoleon to come, uh, and then, of course, needless to say, organizes the defense of the island on the off chance that the British might try to come in and take it. And he does this all in one week. He's only there a bloody week, and yet he accomplishes all of this stuff. And it's it's really it's really amazing. I, I can't so even I can't even get my lawyers to return my calls in under a week. That's 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 right. And I can't get my lawyer to return my call, and my lawyer is my wife. So you know, it's, it's, to 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 do all of that uh, in a week is just amazing. <laughs> 
Okay, so he takes Malta and then he heads off to Egypt. Now, I guess there's some um, really interesting things about the way that he approached the invasion slash expedition to Egypt. Um, Now, again, this is one of those times where you can read this and either be impressed with Napoleon's pathos for the people of Egypt, the Muslim people of Egypt, or you can see it in a cynical manner as, you know, Napoleon learning how to win friends and influence people by telling them what they want to hear, right? And the two of those aren't necessarily in opposing ends of the spectrum. But he obviously had a copy of the Quran translated into French, which he had with him and which he passed out, I believe, to his soldiers. They, they were told to the, the basic precepts of the Muslim faith. I've got a, a proclamation here which I might read. Um, soldiers, you are about to attempt a conquest, the effect of which will be incalculable on civilization and the commerce of the world. You are about to deal England the most certain and telling blow she can suffer until the time comes when you can strike her death stroke. Not many days after our arrival, the Mameluk Bays, who have exclusively favoured English commerce, who have injured our merchants and tyrannised over the wretched inhabitants of the Nile, will have ceased to exist. The people among whom we are going are Mahometans. The chief article of their creed is, God is God and Muhammad is his prophet. Do not contradict them. Deal with them as we have dealt with the Jews and with the Italians. Show respect for their muftis and their imams as you have for rabbis and bishops. The legions of Rome protected all religions. You will meet with customs different from those of Europe. You must learn to accept them. Which is, you know, that's a that's a pretty interesting statement in the late 18th century. Well, and and I really, I thought you were going to come up with something a little bit different when you said it was easy to see this as either either cynical or or being uh, uh, respectful because in in this particular case, I don't think there's any question. He recognizes that if the French are going to stay there. They have to to be seen as liberators. They have to be seen as people who are not going to come in and try to force everybody to be Christian. They don't want, you know, goodness knows, you know, President Bush got into to difficulty when he, he made the, the, the mistake of referring to the American uh, uh, fight against against the Islamic terrorists as a crusade. Uh, Fighting against Islamic terrorists is, is a, a good and valid thing to do, uh, but to call it a crusade is pretty insensitive to the culture of, of, of the Middle East, obviously. Uh, and, and Napoleon is, is trying to be very careful not to be seen as Christian crusaders from Europe coming in, uh, a la the, 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 the 10th century and, 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 and raping and pillaging and so on. So he, 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 he makes it clear to his soldiers, for example, uh, that that they must in fact treat these people well. There will be no rape. There will be no pillage. Uh, anyone guilty of those things will be shot. Uh, a la uh, the the campaign, uh, the British campaign of Agincourt, uh, and 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 so on. Uh, and I think that's all. All you can call it cynical if you want to, but it's practical. Napoleon knows that he has to win at least the grudging uh, support or the grudging acceptance of the 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 Islamic uh, Egyptians 
and he must in some way be seen as coming there to help them, not simply to conquer them. And after all, the people he wants to fight are not the Egyptians per se, but they are, are the Beys, the, the leaders, the kings, if you will, or the princes of the, the Mamelukes. And these folks are not particularly popular in Egypt. They're not Egyptians. These folks are, are, are in from the, uh, Caucasus Mountain area, the, now Georgia, uh, Armenia, that area. Uh, and, and so to, to sort of set the stage as we're the French coming in here to push these turkeys out, and then we're gonna let you Continue your life as you always had it. Continue your religion. We're going to show uh, some some great respect for your people, for your religion, and so on. I just think that that's uh, that's good common sense. Uh, now, there's another uh, uh, proclamation uh, out there where Napoleon claims to have converted uh, and, and and to be a Muslim and so on. And I don't think anyone was fooled by that. I that was cynical. I think it was, you know, Napoleon kind of forgetting himself, and 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 uh, I don't know just who he thought he was fooling on that one. That that's the one I thought you were going to mention, but the one that you mentioned, I think, was was quite good. It was, but uh, I guess when I say you could look at it cynically, I know that Al Jabadi and the you know the, the the Muslim people of Egypt were quite critical of some of the. Uh, Pretenders who came in and pretended to accept and believe the, uh, the 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 principles of the Muslim faith when they obviously didn't, and the, and the the state the, the Egyptians seemed to realise that they were just being placated. Now, yeah, you but, can, but 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 Cameron, that's the the second thing. That that's the one that I mentioned where where he's claiming that that we're coming in here and 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 we're accepting Islam not. As a, not respecting it, we're Christians, but we respect your religion. But where Napoleon you know, tries to suggest that we're coming in here and we're going to become Islamic, and and I, Napoleon, uh, believe in in Muhammad, and I believe in your religion, and so on. Well, they weren't fooled by that, and nor should they have been, because Napoleon wasn't any more uh, Muslim than, than you or I, but. And, and that's what Afar is, is is really writing about. That's that's where he's saying, you know, what kind of idiots did, did did the French think we were if they thought we were going to buy that? But to say there's not going to be rape and pillage, and we're going to respect your religion, we're not going to burn down your mosque, we're not going to, you know, try to inf- inflict uh, a Christianity on you. That's a different thing, and and that was perfectly reasonable and and very practical. Yeah, of course he they did uh, have a. Uh uh, a statement that was basically passed around when they got there that had several articles. Um, the first article was, All the villages situated within three hours' distance from the places through which the French army passes are required to send a commander-in-chief, send to the commander-in-chief some persons to announce the aforesaid that they submit. And the second article was, Any village that shall rise against the French army shall be burnt down. Which, uh, that would have got their attention. I, I think so. And... and you know, again, you know, war is held. Should they have done that? Uh, no, but they had to make it clear, as Alexander had done. I mean, it's very, very similar to, to what you were suggesting before, the emulation of Alexander. Alexander would basically, uh, as he was on his campaign, uh, give a city a, a choice. You can surrender, 
and with a possible exception of a few of your top honchos, uh, you'll all be fine, and and we'll we'll appoint one of you as our local satrap, and 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 life will go on. Or you can resist me, as some cities have done, and when we do conquer you, you're all toast. Uh, and, 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 you know, they eventually began to, to understand that. Uh, they saw what happened at Tyr and some other places and, and, uh, uh, you know, that, that, that word got out and, and quite a few cities would, would quickly surrender when, when Alexander showed up. And Napoleon is basically saying the same thing. If you're, if you surrender, we won't bother you. Send, send your head, the head guys here. We'll, we'll send proclamations out there. You can give us food and supplies and so on. Uh, and, 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 and you're fine. But, but of course, if you organize to resist against us, the French army, the invincible French army will come in and, and, and kill you. Uh, well, what a shock. You know, you, you choose to fight us, we're gonna fight you and we're gonna win. So, he, uh, marched on to Cairo, arrived at Alexandria, marched on to Cairo, and that's where the, you know, the famous, one of his most famous victories, <coughs> Excuse me. The Battle of the Pyramids against the Mameluke army happened in sight of the pyramids, and there's a very famous speech which I'm sure you'll want to give. <laughs> and, I, uh, and I and I I submit to you, my learned friend. Well, I don't even have the whole speech in front of me, but because I have become so accustomed to you stealing my thunder, I, I've long, I have long since given up. But it does. It does say, you know, it starts out, soldiers, 40 centuries of history look down on you. And, and there are countless images of Napoleon standing in front of his soldiers, uh, uh, with the pyramids in, in the background. Uh, two of the, uh, actually three of the items in my uh, collection that I've loaned, the Dahesh, have that image, uh, uh, on them. Uh, the other one is the Battle of the Nile, which we'll, we will possibly talk about next time, but, but, uh, it's uh, it's 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 classic Bonaparte. It's classic uh, Na- General Napoleon Bonaparte standing in front of his thirty-five thousand soldiers and 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 inspiring them to uh, a great victory. And they give it to him. The Battle of the Pyramids is in fact one of Napoleon's greatest victories. Uh, the Mamelukes uh, were almost medieval. They were fearsome fighters. They were fearless fighters. They had fine horses. They were great cavalry. They had these great curved swords. Uh, and, you know, if you saw 5,000 of them charging down on you, you would tremble in fear. Unless, of course, you were a British square with some number of lines of expert uh, uh, shots with muskets and cannon firing grape shot on all four corners. The Mamelukes did not have modern weapons. They only knew one kind of warfare, and that's charge. Uh, and so they would charge, uh, and, and it was basically a slaughter. Uh, they would they would ride their horses around and round, and they would try to break squares. And it seems to me they maybe broke one square, but basically it was a slaughter. Uh, it reminds me a little bit, by the way, of the Battle of Borodino many years later, where a lot of the citizens of of Moscow, uh, and this is shown brilliantly in the various uh, movie renditions of of War and Peace, uh, the citizens of Moscow come out to see what they think might very well be a great uh, victory by 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 the uh, Russians, uh, only to discover that that the French 
are, are ultimately going to, to win that battle. Well, anyone who was expecting the Mamelukes with their fearsome charges to defeat the very, very disciplined and modern uh, French army was doomed to, to disappointment. Uh, and in about two hours, the, the Mamelukes were, were just decimated, uh, totally wiped out, uh, uh, and and uh, many of them did escape. Uh, uh, many others uh, drowned uh, uh, in the Nile, trying to escape. And and Napoleon now controls most of Lower Egypt, uh, and certainly the the, the capital uh, of Cairo. And and again, for those of you who were thinking about the map, remember Lower Egypt is the northern part of Egypt. It's called Lower Egypt because the Nile, of course, flows north and empties into the Mediterranean. So. Lower Egypt is the north, Upper Egypt is the south. That's a little bit confusing uh, to someone who doesn't know about the Nile, but but there you are. Oh, I didn't know that. There you go. I have learnt yet again something from you, my esteemed colleague. You, you mean after all, all of these episodes, I have finally stumbled <laughs> onto something that I can teach you. All right. <laughs> Success. La victoire est à moi. <laughs> Everything I know about Napoleon, I've learned from your books, of course, David. Oh, my goodness. My, my, my listeners out there, I have to tell you, I wish I wore boots. It is getting very deep in here now. <laughs> now, um, after the incredible victory at the Battle of the Pyramids, Napoleon learnt of um, you know a, at least one major disaster and then one possible minor personal disaster. But um, General Kleber, who was in command of Alexandria, he left Kleber in Alexandria when when Napoleon went on to Cairo, announced him that uh, Admiral Nelson had caught up to the French fleet, August second, seventeen ninety eight that was anchored at Abu Kerr Bay and pretty much wiped it out. Well, yeah, you're, you're, you're of course, <laughs> absolutely right. Uh, the, the fleet had been anchored uh, out, outside of Alexandria, and Napoleon had actually told uh, uh, Admiral Bruet to, to get the heck out of there uh, put the fleet into the port itself where it would have been protected, go to the island of Corfu, which was a French island where it would also be safe. Uh, but Bruet instead uh, decides to, to do neither of these. He, he's got his 13 ships, and so he lines them up along the coast in a line formation that he figured would, would present a, a, a massive wall of firepower against any attacking navy. Uh, he had shore batteries that he thought would prevent anyone from getting between him and the shore. Uh, they would be having to run the gauntlet between the French ships and the, and the gun emplacements. Uh, but the fact of the matter is uh, that, 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 that there were some problems with the way uh, the French admiral uh, chose to to put his uh, ships. First and most fundamental was that he he put them around a mile and a half from the shore, and that's just way too far out. He was out of range of the shore batteries. It was a much more difficult uh, uh, communication problem to to coordinate between the shore and the ships, uh, and worse, uh, he no longer would be protected by the shallow water near the shore. Uh, the 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 plan would have been to be close enough to the shore that there wasn't a whole lot of deep water for the British ships to use, so they would be even if they dared to try it, 
forced to sort of go down one uh, uh, narrow channel, if you will, and, and be blown to smithereens by the shore batteries and the French ships. But by being so far out, they, they gave the British ships time to maneuver uh, and to maneuver close to the, the French ships and out of range of most of the shore batteries. Uh, and then again, finally, because they were a mile and a half out, getting new supplies uh, sent in, new new uh, men, uh, men who were on on shore leave when the British ships were were sighted, didn't have time to to get back to their ships because a mile and a half is a long way when you're in a rowboat, a uh, small skiff of some kind. So as a result, many of the French ships were were short-handed, couldn't couldn't use the firepower uh, uh, that they had. As a result, the British could encircle the entire French fleet uh, and and encircle a French fleet which had to man the guns on both sides of each ship since the you know they've got a two front war here as it were and they don't have sufficient staff sufficient manpower uh to do that uh and and this long line turns out to to be a disaster uh because uh the ships were too far apart from each other. They couldn't help each other. They couldn't communicate very well. They had no way to maneuver. Uh, they had no real way to uh, to to retreat. And as 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 a result, when when Nelson shows up on the first of August of 1798, he says, "The heck with waiting. I'm going to attack immediately. I'm not going to give the French ships any chance whatsoever." Uh, and so, you know, at two o'clock in the afternoon, the, the French see the, the, the British, uh, but the, again, not to be repetitive, but the sailors on shore couldn't get there in time. Uh, many gunners and other important positions, a number of officers, uh, were, were simply not there. Uh, and it was a disaster. The, the French fleet, uh, surrounded uh, Brue was killed very, very early on, uh, and it, the, the ship goes. The, the battle goes on and on and on, <clears throat> and this is why that communication with the shore and the ability to to get supplies back and forth was important because naval battles sometimes go on for hours and hours. Uh, it wasn't, you know, they were first. The British were first sighted at two. It wasn't until about ten o'clock uh, in the evening that the French flagship Lorient. Uh, Blew to pieces. It had burned for a while, and all of a sudden, there was this explosion that could be heard for miles and miles. One of my snuff boxes in the in, in the Dahesh exhibition shows the the explosion of 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 uh, L'Orient. and it was such an incredible, an incredible event that the battle stopped. It must have been at least fifteen minutes. That everybody just sort of stood there, British and French alike, and sort of stared at what soon became the, an empty spot in the French line where the ship had once been. And this was the flagship. This was the piece de resistance of, of the French fleet there. And it was just gone in, in almost an instant. And, and the, the British, to, to their absolute credit, were sending uh, lifeboats out to try to rescue 
any French sailor who who, who may have survived that. Uh, again, the the snuff box that I that I have in the exhibit shows the 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 French uh, longboats out there trying to 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 save any French survivors. And and uh, you know that was just you know the battle eventually goes on and 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 actually continues uh, uh, through 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 the night. Can I, sorry, can I interrupt you on l- the just the Lorient story there? There's of course a, yeah. fam- a famous poem that came out of the tragedy, which I'm sure you'll be able to recite to people. I don't have that poem in front of me, now, and but somehow I know you do. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the one of the captains of the boat, Captain Casabianca, right? I can hear my echo back now. Had a young son who saw a bunch of powder kegs catch a light and he quite bravely tried to put them out ran up and tried to put them out just before they exploded and uh, a british poet felicia hemmins uh some years later wrote the famous poem which opens the boy stood on the burning deck whence all but he had fled the flame that lit the battle's wreck shone round him o'er the dead so the boy stood on the burning deck, which has been parodied many, many, many times since, but comes from uh, that particular explosion, the, the young son of uh, Casabianca trying to put out the flames. Well, ab- absolutely. And, and, and there's a few other things that are interesting about, about this battle. Uh, the, 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 the French ships at the rear of the line had never really come under a, a major attack. And... And a lot of people criticize Admiral uh, uh, de, de Villeneuve uh, for not trying to maneuver his ships uh, in a way that they could challenge some of the, the, the British ships. Instead of sailing to the sound of the guns, as it were, uh, he, he, uh, he managed uh, to escape uh, with his four ships. Uh, and he did preserve four ships of the French fleet, but you know those four ships might might have turned uh, the tide of battle. It's 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 impossible to say. The other thing that, that that's very very interesting about this is uh, what's a, a a relatively new field of underwater archaeology. Uh, Two hundred years after this battle, uh, in 1983, divers discovered the wreckage. Uh, of uh, L'Orient and wow. and 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 uh, by I think it was about ninety eight or so uh, there was some serious exploration. They brought up uh, countless priceless artifacts. Uh, there was a Discovery Channel program uh, and and a, a book, uh, the company that called Napoleon's Lost Fleet, uh, which both the book and the program that are very nice job of of telling the details of the battle although I have to tell you they, they don't like Napoleon uh, and they, they have a lot of bad things to say about Napoleon who wasn't even there and had in fact given orders that had they been followed uh, the Battle of the Nile would never have taken place the the French would probably never have destroyed the the uh, or excuse me the British would never have destroyed the the French fleet uh, or at least not likely as completely and, and decisively as they did and who knows with the a French able to go back and forth uh, and play the needle in the haystack game with Nelson's navy uh, the the whole campaign in, in Egypt might have turned out different it, it's 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 impossible to say uh, but the fact of the matter is of course that the loss of the French fleet 
the loss of the ability to get regular replacements. And I say regular because a lot of folks forget some French ships <clears throat> did manage to get uh, to to Egypt. There 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 were some fresh troops brought in. There were some uh, long timers and some wounded uh, troops uh, sent out. It wasn't completely cut off as as often as is suggested in history books, but it was largely cut off. And without the navy support uh, later on, we'll talk about the Battle of of, of Acre. Uh, that's clearly lost in large measure because of the lack of navy support and so on. Uh, to the extent that the Egyptian campaign is a either a disaster, as some historians would have you uh, believe, or at best a a mixed result, which is something a little bit closer to reality. I think there was bad news and good news for for the French. Uh, it, it all comes down to the Battle of the Nile. Had that gone differently, or had it not ever happened? History of this campaign would be very different. I like I like the uh, telling of the story where uh, Napoleon receives the letter. He's sitting down to breakfast when uh, one of his aide de camp's uh, Lavalette comes in with the letter notifying him of the the destruction of the fleet. Napoleon uh, reads the letter, goes in to have breakfast with his staff who were sharing out some of the loot from the uh, successes. <laughs> And he very calmly says, it seems like you like this country. That is very lucky, for now we have no fleet to carry us back to Europe. And then basically proceeded to tell them what they were going to do. It's okay, we're going to manufacture our own gunpowder and cannonballs. Basically calmly laid out the plans for what they were going to do next. And, you know, showed no signs of the uh, anger and frustration and anxiety I'm sure he must have felt at that particular moment. So they cut off. Sorry, you have something to say? Go ahead. No, no, you go. Well, I was going to say, I, I agree completely uh, with what you say, but to me, that's good leadership. You know, what, you know, what, you don't want your commanding officer to say, "Oh my God, are we in trouble now?" You know, we depended on this fleet for this, 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 and that. Without them, we're screwed royally. Uh, <laughs> geez, guys, what do you think we should do about it? He's going to go in there. He's going to say, "Okay." We've had a setback. I can't hide that fact from you. There's no question. Everybody in that room understood that things were going to be tougher without the ability to have regular contact with France. Okay, how are we going to deal with it? Well, here's what I think we should do. This, 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 and this, the, the items you mentioned. That, to me, is good, calm, let's not panic kind of leadership. And I think you've got to give Napoleon a great deal of credit for that. And, by the way... He does relatively well in Egypt, considering the the devastating loss of the fleet. Mm. So um, around about this time, also he finds out that Talleyrand didn't go to the Turkish Sultan Selim the Third and uh, notify him of France's intentions. So he realizes that he's now facing a you know a, a showdown with the Turkish army. Well, he's not just facing he's not just facing a showdown. He's got two showdowns because the 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 sultan is is furious, of course, as you can imagine, 
And so the Sultan sends two armies against Napoleon. One by land through the Holy Land, down through what's modern day Israel and, and, and Syria and, and Israel and, 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 and on down, uh, uh, planning to come all, all the way down through, through Gaza and across the Sinai and, and, and toward Cairo. That's, that's the invasion plan of that army. And then another army, which will be delayed because of of, of the weather conditions of the Mediterranean at that time, uh, <clears throat> that will come by sea and eventually will 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 land uh, at, at Abakur. Uh, so he's got two armies, uh, pretty fearsome armies, I might add, that he has to deal with. Plus, the Mamelukes are still running running around, uh, you know, up in the Holy Land area. These ways he's chased them away from Cairo, but they're still out there marauding around. He, around about the same time, um, General Junot comes uh, to Napoleon with a letter concerning uh, Josephine. We mentioned in the last episode she was having an affair with uh, Captain Hippolyte Charles, and uh, this is she's back in Paris now and all over Paris <laughs> with Charles. He's coming to the house. They're going to the opera together and sitting in the dimly lit box. So Napoleon's well aware now that this is still going on. Nepo- uh, Josephine's still having this very uh, public affair behind his back while he's off campaigning. And so he uh, finds himself a, a very attractive wife of one of his uh, soldiers in Egypt who happens to be in Egypt. He um, the Pauline Fure, he sends her husband off to France and starts having, I guess, the first public, anyway, affair since his marriage with uh, to Josephine. Sure, he's he's devastated uh, by this. He had, <coughs> excuse me, had perhaps had had some some inkling of this in Italy, but had chosen to ignore it. Uh, he may have had additional, you know, hints about it uh, while he was uh, in in Egypt, but he chose to ignore it. But but finally, he has to to recognize that that not only is she having a, a, an affair, but she is having a flagrant affair, and and uh, everybody knows about it. Napoleon is in fact becoming something of a laughing stock in Paris. Uh, this is a long jump from being a national hero to a laughing stock because your wife is running around with this dashing young uh, uh, captain or major or whatever he was at this point. Uh, but it was even worse than that, uh, Cameron. Uh, Josephine who was a prolific spender, as Napoleon would, would find out uh, throughout their, their, their marriage, and we all know their marriage ends up actually being quite good, but, but uh, uh, she, she was uh, a spendthrift, uh, the likes of which have not been seen, of course, until I started collecting, and then you know, I may have begun to match her a little bit. Uh, uh, but to... to uh, to finance a lot of this, she she involved in, in what we would call war profiteering. She was using Napoleon's name to to run a procurement of military supplies uh, uh, a scam of some kind, and 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 this was not doing Napoleon's uh, reputation uh, any good at all. And you know Napoleon, who who has so many things going his way, <clears throat> now has this sort of one-two whammy. He, he's got the, the disaster uh, at Abakur, the, the first battle of Abakur, where, where, where Napoleon's fleet is, 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 is destroyed. Uh, and now he, 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 he hears about Josephine, and, and, and he writes his brother a long letter that says, in part, I have great private unhappiness. 
the veil has at last quite fallen from my eyes. Uh, and, <laughs> you know, if, if things weren't bad enough, this letter, of course, is intercepted by, by the British fleet. The British intercepted a lot of French letters, and they gleefully published them. I've got three or four volumes of French letters translated more or less correctly uh, into English uh, from various soldiers and officers uh, in Egypt, you know, bemoaning the terrible conditions. And so these are published in the newspapers and volumes are, are, are produced uh, uh, like the ones I have uh, to sort of counteract this, this, oh, everything is going well image. And of course, when they can, when they can, you know, publish general, the, the commanding general Bonaparte's letter about his, his wife's infidelities. I mean, this is, this is just devastating. And, and like I said, he, he, he was a laughing stock. Uh, so he makes two decisions. Uh, the first one, which you didn't mention, is that he, he says to himself, to his brother and others, says, when I get home, Josephine is out. I'm going to divorce Josephine. I'm going to do the honorable thing. I'm going to get rid of this 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 woman who has humiliated me uh, before uh, my country, and 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 I'll find somebody else. And secondly, in the meantime, two can play that game. So he finds this really cute uh, 29-year-old leggy blonde. Uh, as she is described someplace, uh, and she's there. This is kind of an amusing story. She was there, of course, as you say, as the as 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 the husband to uh, Lieutenant uh, Jean de Welfouré, uh, and she had been smuggled into uh, Egypt, uh, uh, dressed in the uniform of, of a soldier. Uh, this was a common way of of getting this contraband, uh, namely your wife, uh, there. Once she's there, uh, off comes the hat, out comes the long hair. Everybody understands it, and and things are fine. Uh, well, Napoleon takes a liking to her. Uh, they, they they get involved with groups of people in card games in the in the commanding officer's outer tent. Uh, he uh, he sends her husband. Uh, off on a, on a fool's errand to uh, France, and, and 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 pretty soon he and Pauline take up uh, what we might call today in a divorce court open and notorious uh, relationship. And then the British once again intervene, much to Napoleon's uh, initial dismay at least. Not only have they captured these various letters, but now they capture uh, the Lieutenant Jean Furet himself. They immediately recognize who he is, and ever anxious to be friendly to the French, they, rather than put him on a prison hulk somewhere uh, in England, they send him back to his loving wife in <laughs> Egypt. And, of course, there are words. Uh, one hopes there was only strong words and not other kinds of violence, uh, but apparently... Uh, Things got pretty desperate. They quickly divorced. And at that point, Napoleon uh, and Pauline, who, who the soldiers already were calling you know, Napoleon's uh, Cleopatra, uh, were everywhere. And, and Josephine gets word of this. Napoleon, of course, wants Josephine to get word of this. Hey, lady, two of us can play that game. 
she hears about it, and, and, and perhaps somewhat surprisingly, she is apparently rather devastated. It never occurred to her that, 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 that her husband might, might decide to do the same thing once he found out about her. Uh, by the way, uh, Pauline, just to sort of the rest of the story, if you will, on this one, when Napoleon leaves, and we'll talk about that quite a bit later and maybe the next episode, uh, when Napoleon leaves, uh, Pauline stays, she becomes the mistress to your, your buddy, uh, General uh, Kleber, uh, and eventually she returns uh, to, uh, to Paris, uh, she remarries, uh, and, uh, and, and leads out a quiet and, and a fairly long life uh, in Paris. Okay, well, all of that fun and jolliness is going on. Napoleon moves on. They leave Egypt and they head, as you mentioned before, to the Holy Land, to Israel, where they're going to confront the Turks, basically. Now, there's a, there's another famous episode here, and um, I guess we better speed through it fairly quickly because we're running up to almost 70 minutes here. But you're, um, asking, you're asking me to go through something fairly <laughs> quickly? You surely jest. And I've got a lunch appointment I've got to get to. He, um, now, he, he, he takes Gaza, uh, fighting the Turks this time, and... and there's a, there's a fairly infamous uh, scenario here where he captures all of these Turkish prisoners, but then realizes he, he he doesn't really have anything he can do with them. He can't feed them. He can't take them with them. Now, basically, you know, what happens is they get executed. And th- there's a lot of different ways that this is depicted. Obviously, the anti-Napoleon camp classify this as uh, cruel uh, behavior and, and not really what we would accept in today's day and age with the treatment of prisoners. Uh, what, what's your perspective on the, the prisoners at Gaza? Well, well, first of all, you, 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 you've, you've combined two battles here, Cameron, if you'll forgive me. <laughs> I told and, you I was in a hurry. <laughs> yeah, well, but, but we have, if, if, we, if we're going to do this in this episode, we need to spend a little time on it. Okay. Uh, at, at El Arish in, in, in Gaza, uh, and, and this is a, a big delay in, in several articles that I've written and, and, and also in my book. One of the, one of the things I point out is that, that several things intervene to, to create a disaster for Napoleon in the expedition to the Holy Land because of the massive delays. So he spends a long time at El Arish. Uh, he, he captures a town, but, but the, the fortress itself, uh, uh, takes uh, you know uh, quite a while for him to take, and he takes two thousand Turks as prisoners. Now the problem is, he's got a very limited invasion force. He's in a desert. He has very little extra food and water, uh, if any. Uh, in fact, they're already dangerously low on 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 both. So he doesn't have the forces available to send them back to Cairo. He has no one available to keep them imprisoned in, in El Arish. So he does the, the typically Western European 19th and 18th century thing. He says, okay, guys, if you will swear not to fight for at least one year against the French, then we will release you on your word on, on, on what's called in, 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 in in those days on parole. Parole was normally given to officers, but it could be given to to, to uh, enlisted men as well. And so he says, we will accept your word. So they all stand up, they raise their right hand or whatever, and they say, uh, yes, uh, General, we swear not to fight against you. 
Well, you know, this is this is wonderful if you're fighting the Austrians or if you're fighting, you know, the Prussians, uh, the Spanish, or the British. They're going to to adhere to that code of honor. But the Turks are, uh, you know, they they have no uh, uh, interest in 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 this at all. And so he, uh, you know, he's not going to 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 find that these Muslims are are going to pay any regard to this Western code of honor. So now he goes up the coast to to Jaffa, which is uh, today called Jaffa, uh, which is now a, a suburb of, of Tel Aviv. And you look on the map as Jaffa dash Tel Aviv, uh, Tel Aviv being the capital of of Israel. Uh, and in March, on March 7th of 1799, they take the city. And they capture about 4,000 prisoners. Now, the city is an important city. There's a lot of supplies there. Uh, it's, it's a major port and, and, and so forth and so on. He discovers that, you know, pretty close to half of these 4,000 that he's captured are the very people he released on parole. Now, can I ask you a question? That How would he know that? Did he get their like names and addresses? I mean, <laughs> how are you going to know that several thousand men are the same several thousand men you fought a couple of weeks ago? Well, and, and that's a fair question. Uh, in, in a wonderful miniseries uh, many many years ago called Napoleon and Josephine with uh, Armand Arsante as 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 Napoleon. Oh, that was you know, terrible. What, Terrible. I got. I enjoyed it thoroughly, but there, there they show you know two or three. One guy in particular is obvious. It's the same guy. How he did it was it was it through you know some kind of an ID system or something? I honestly can't tell you. But he discovers quickly. Maybe they maybe they're bragging about it because they they might very well. After all, in in their culture, they might have said, "Yeah, you see, you you were stupid enough to release us, and and here we are again." Again, I honestly can't can't give you a good answer on that, but it does present a real quandary to to Napoleon. Uh, you know, he can't give he, he doesn't dare put him on parole again because it's clear they will fight him again. And it, people who criticize Napoleon for this have to remember the number one obligation of any commanding general. Is the the is the men he commands? Her nowadays she commands. It is absolutely essential that the commander in chief of any army look out for the welfare of his or her soldiers. Okay, so if you release these people, they're going to come back and they're going to kill some of your soldiers, and that's intolerable. Now, if he keeps them as prisoner with basically nowhere near enough food, either they're going to starve or his soldiers are going to starve because even with taking this port city, there's simply not enough food to go around. There is no good choice. However, the rules of war in Europe, not just you know, in, 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 in the Middle East where there were no rules of war, uh, as, as we'll see later on, uh, the rules of war in Europe said that if the walls are breached and the soldiers continue to fight, now the game is different. Now they can, in fact, be executed. And 
And that's a lot like, as I say in, 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 in Napoleon for Dummies, it's very similar to if, if an army is retreating. You know, you, you can kill retreating soldiers. You can't kill re- soldiers who stop, throw down their guns, and put their hands in the air. Now they are trying to surrender. You must accept their surrender and, and, and do what you can. But if they're retreating, you, you can. Just like the first Gulf War when Saddam's, uh, Republican Guard was retreating. They were susceptible to being to being shot by uh, you know coalition aircraft, uh, helicopters, tanks, or, or whatever, because they were not in fact throwing down their weapons and and trying to uh, to to quit the war. <clears throat> so they have they you know by the rules of war, whether or not we really like the rules of war or not, that's that's fair game. Uh, by the rules of war, he can do it. Uh, not only that, by the way, uh, Napoleon had sent an emissary to. To Joppa, saying, "You know, we're here, guys. Uh, we don't want to fight you. We don't want to kill you. Uh, we will. We will offer you very favorable terms of surrender. That's a very Western thing to do. And they would have expected either them to be accepted or the emissary to be sent back with word, we will fight you heathen to the death.' Well, what they did is, after a few hours." Uh, and goodness knows what kind of tortures had preceded this. Uh, the French soldiers look up uh, onto the parapets of the of, of the walled city, and they see the heads of these emissaries on pikes. Well, this is not exactly going to endear uh, the local populace to Napoleon or his soldiers. So Napoleon, you know, he consults everybody. He holds war council. He consults his generals. He I don't doubt for a moment consults his conscience. But in the end, he has to decide that the welfare of his men is more important. So he, so he executes uh, those soldiers. It was a terrible decision to have to make. No one likes to do that. I would not, however, want it to have been the father of a son killed by one of those soldiers had they been allowed to live and fight another day. The, the only thing I can tell you is that in, in British history, you have a very similar situation at the Battle of Agincourt with Henry V, uh, where he has uh, 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 captured uh, French soldiers back with a baggage train, and suddenly things start to look pretty grim, and he has to be very, very much afraid that these soldiers will be liberated by by French uh, encirclement and, and, and will live to fight again against his British soldiers, and he has them killed. Uh, and that must have been a horrible decision for Henry V to have to make. It was a horrible decision for Napoleon to have to make. He's paid historically, of course, a great price for it because he gets criticized uh, routinely. But... I have to say, as, as, as much as I don't like having to have made that decision, I think, frankly, it was the, it was the proper decision to make. Mm. There's also another famous uh, scenario that has been enshrined in at least one famous painting uh, at this period where a number of the soldiers Napoleon had with him had caught the plague. And there's, a, again, one of these paintings which... I don't know if you can take it literally or if it's purely allegorical, but uh, I know that you have uh, been there. There's this scene where Napoleon picked up one of the plagued soldiers and carried him to a a, a bed. Can you tell us a little bit about that? 
Well, you're quite correct. I've, I've been there. There's a certain irony to all this, by the way, because the first question you have to ask is, well, how did they catch the plague? And they caught the plague because, unfortunately, uh, the French army was livid uh, at, at, the, at the end of that battle. Uh, they knew that their, a lot of their buddies had been killed by these folks who had been put on parole. They had been sickened by the, the sight of of a, a French head on a pike, although in, in the French Revolution there have been plenty of French heads on French pikes. Uh, you know, never, nevertheless, uh, for the entire evening, uh, there was rape and pillage, uh, and Napoleon simply was unable to restore order. It wasn't until morning that he and his officers could get the men who were by now exhausted from raping and pillaging uh, to calm down. And that, of course, is how they got the plague, you know, from from all that ex- extraneous behavior. Uh, so, so Napoleon sets up this uh, monastery as a hospital, uh, and the painting that you're that you're talking about is uh, is by Antoine Jean Gros, by the way. And and that room still exists. I, I've been I've stood in the middle of that room. You can see exactly how it looked in the painting, and it's 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 exactly that way now. Uh, excuse me, in in, in Jaffa, uh, and it did take place. He did in fact uh, uh, do a lot of things to 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 help these soldiers. He would go and he would talk with them. He touched them. He he helped to move a corpse out of. Out of the, the the living quarters, uh, he arranged for uh, uh, for music to be played and so on. Uh, it was one of Napoleon's better moments, and it was some risk. The plague is quite contagious, and and uh, Napoleon could have caught it, but but Napoleon was always Cameron, always known as someone who could literally. Or figuratively, literally in this case, figuratively oftentimes, reach out and touch his men, and his men reached back and touched him. Uh, he, he had this, this empathy with his soldiers, and they had this, this empathy with him, uh, that would last for his entire career. His soldiers were always his number one concern, and his soldiers were loyal to him. They loved him, uh, to, 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 to the bitter, End. And this kind of event, this uh, thing at Joppa uh, with with the plague, uh, folks, is, is is one of the reasons. And it's not a myth. It's not just something some painter has uh, has glorified. It really did happen. And and I can tell you, and, and I think I say this in 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 my book, when I was there, I was with a group of Israelis and some other historians. It was it was a moving experience even then to to stand where where something like that occurred. I've stood on many battlefields. I've stood on the Protestant Heights for Austerlitz and at Waterloo and 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 at Borodino on the on, on the redoubts and so on. And and I don't think any of them touched me as much as standing in in that old monastery where where Napoleon showed some real humanity toward. Toward his soldiers, and and I think our listeners need to understand that a lot of generals would have said, "Oh, the plague—they got the plague from raping local women." You know, take good care of them, doctor. But I'm not going to go in there. But Napoleon went in there, and 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 he tried to give whatever comfort he could to soldiers that that had fought for him, and 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 that's that's very touching. Indeed. 
All right, I can tell this is going to be a 90-minute show, so we might as well just <laughs> keep going. <laughs> um, I thought this was going to be a quick one too. Um, now, uh, he moves on, and this is a battle that you mentioned before, um, Acha or Ako, known as in as several different names, A-C-R-E, Acha. Uh, now, this is where he met the Turkish forces led by the Pasha, and uh, yeah, this was um, an interesting battle. He tried to take it by bombardment, by frontal assault, but it didn't really work. It was a, it was a long siege, six weeks. He was uh, trying to take the city, and then um, you know they, they they went on to another battle, a second battle. But why don't you talk us uh, quickly through both of these battles against the Turks, and then his Napoleon's departure from Egypt. Well, the, the Battle of Acre, or as you say, it's 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 in nowadays I think it's called Akko. Uh He he meets these Turks uh, who are led by uh, Dajer Pasha, uh, whose nickname, by the way, was the Butcher. Uh, so you can see he's not going to give too much in the way of quarter. Uh, Sir Sidney Smith, who thanks to Napoleon's uh, delay at, at Gaza at El Arish, has, has come in with 800 British soldiers. He now controls the port, uh, which means it will be not possible for Napoleon to land his heavy siege guns, which had been sent by ship uh, to to uh, along the coastline. Well, they, they can no longer uh, be landed. Uh, and, and a royalist uh, traitor... Uh, Named uh, Picard uh, Filippo, uh, who had been a classmate of Napoleon's, by the <laughs> way, in school, actually Smith captures a siege cannon, and and Filippo, who was an architect, uh, sets up uh, a new line of walls for Acker's defenses. Uh, so Napoleon does everything he can. For six weeks, he has. Uh, uh, he has some guns, of course. They're not nearly big enough. He he has frontal attacks. He has all sorts of other things. Uh, he tries. None of it works. At one point, he actually does breach the front walls, and the first troops find a way to get through the newly discovered inner wall, and they come rushing back to tell the story. But the, the, the troops behind them uh, feel that what they're doing is retreating because it's a disaster. And so everybody retreats. So instead of moving forward, they retreat. Here's one of the ironies of this campaign. Napoleon, who was, his journey considered to be the father of modern warfare, was sometimes strangely averse to using uh, modern uh, technology in war. And he had with him, for example some observation balloons. Now, had he been willing to send those observation balloons up, he would have quickly seen two things. First of all, he would have seen that there was an inner wall for much of uh, the defense of Acre. And so he would have had to plan for that inner wall. And, and, and he, by being high in the air, would have been able to figure out how to, to deal with that. He also would have realized that because of ditches and other things, the walls were too high for the ladders that the French were trying to use to scale them. So he, at the very least, would have used longer ladders. But for whatever reason, Napoleon would not use those observation balloons uh, and, and, and therefore never really fully understood what, what the deal was. Uh, so ultimately, 
the 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 Battle of Acre, the siege of Acre, is not going to uh, to 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 work. Uh, on the other hand, it has to be said that he he sends out uh, General Juno Klebera Mura uh, to fight the the main Turkish Mameluk army. Remember, I told you earlier that the Turks were were coming by land, and they were getting pretty close to Acre. And they were joined by quite a bit of Mameluk cavalry. And so, uh, Klebera, Mira, and Juno go out there and, and they, they have a lot of initial success, uh, but near the, uh, area of Mount Tabor, uh, very close to Nazareth, uh, for those of you who know your history, uh, and, you know, things got a little bit dicey, but Napoleon, and, and what has to be either a brilliant or a lucky move had decided to bring some units with him uh, and and march in support of Kleber. So Napoleon appears upon the scene. The Mamluks and the Turks are, are suddenly caught in a vice. Uh, they are uh, uh, wiped out. The Mamluks are finished as a fighting force. Uh, they're done. The Turks are decimated. They hightail it out of there. They lose their baggage train. They lose their spare horses. Huge numbers of, of excellent Mameluk horses uh, are captured by the French. No longer will the French, no longer will Napoleon have to fear an invasion on land by either the Mameluks or the Turks. And that's why Although everybody looks at Acker and says, okay, he had to give up. He didn't capture Acker. Uh, Sidney Smith and his band of, of, of brothers uh, held out against, against the, the, the Napoleon and the French, and, and so it was, a, it was a failure. Well, Montebor and the defeat of the, of, of the Turks and the Mamelukes means that it was not really a failure. It was a mixed blessing. But they go back. You know, sort of their tail between their legs in some respect. An awful lot of injuries, an awful lot of of uh, of, 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 of illness, uh, and they uh, they march back uh, uh, to uh, Cairo. Uh, he leaves uh, his his sick along the way. He does not poison them, by the way, to preemptively strike against the question you may raise. Uh, in fact, eyewitness British accounts point out when they when they arrive where, where the British uh, where the French uh, uh, wounded have, have been left that that they're still there and they're taken care of and so on. Uh, he goes back. Napoleon goes back to Cairo, tries to make the best of it, uh, but of course it's it's. Uh, you know, it's it's not everything uh, that 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 it could be. Uh, except again, I, I want to. I always try to emphasize the positive. He's he, the main reason he went north into the Holy Land was to stop the Turks and defeat the Mamelukes. He does that, and and so in that sense, it's successful. Now he has to deal with the Turks coming by sea. So to wrap up, David. They come by sea. They they land at Alexandria at uh, near Alexandria at Abakur. Yeah, nine thousand Turks fight eight thousand French. They're completely routed. These Turks, uh, you know, I think th- seven thousand of them uh, either shot or drowned. The rest are captured. The French lose only a hundred and have uh, some several hundred more wounded. Uh, they're pretty much wiped out. So he finished it on a high point. 
But yes. uh, then Napoleon starts to receive uh, notification from Europe that a lot of the victories that he made in the Italian campaign against the, the English and the Austrians have been reversed. France is losing ground, losing a lot of the territory that he captured. The peace treaties have been broken. And he decides he needs to get the hell out of Dodge and get back to where the, the main action is happening back in back in France. Now, he sort of does one of these things where he disappears in the middle of the night almost, almost unannounced, except to a, for a few letters quickly dashed off to General Kleber, giving him command of Egypt, uh, the French forces in Egypt, and to have a few of his trusted associates, a quick letter to the mistress, Pauline, and he jumps on a, a frigate and, try and, and uh, successfully evades Nelson's fleet and gets back to Paris, where, which is where he really starts the, you know, wow, it's like every episode he seems to go on to bigger and grander things. And certainly this next episode is where Napoleon really consolidates everything that he's been doing for the previous four or five years. Well, you're right, uh, and he does leave in the middle of the night. He's often criticized for that, but as you point out, he has to find a way to evade the Nelson's fleet, so he doesn't want the, the no doubt, uh, existing uh, British spies to, to have a lot of time to, to alert the fleet. Uh, he, he leaves, among other things, the Cisalpine Republic has been recaptured and, and it's, it's, it's government deposed, and this is, you know, his pride and joy. Uh, he's, in, in a sense, he's deserting his troops. In a sense, he's he's marching in, in defense of, of a France in need. Take your pick. If you don't like Napoleon, he's deserting his troops, and technically that's true. If you like Napoleon, he's marching to the sound of the guns. Uh, in fact, the the uh, the French uh, government has sent a recall uh, to him, asking him to come back. But of course, he didn't know that. Uh, and by the time he gets there, by the way, things have calmed down quite a bit. Uh, but for better or for worse, he heads off. He goes to Corsica. Uh, by the way, in Corsica, he stays there for about a week. Uh, Napoleon is once again a huge hero. This is the the local boy made good. Uh, and you go you go to Napoleon's home, and you go in back into I think it was his bedroom. Uh, there's a trap door in the floor. Uh, that goes uh, into the wine cellar or whatever underneath the house. And sometimes the crowds were so large uh, outside the front door wanting to see this great, you know, Corsican to them, General Bonaparte, that Napoleon goes through this trap door to get out and, and go wherever it is, is, is he wants to do. Uh, but he arrives on the 9th of October, and yes, uh, Cameron, I am in fact wrapping it up for you here. <laughs> he, he, he arrives on the 9th of October of 1799 at Fréjus. He is a welcomed as a hero as far as the French public is concerned. This is the conqueror of Egypt, the destroyer of the Mamelukes, uh, it, and he has now returned to save La France. Uh, a week later, he is in Paris, and the world is about to discover the great Napoleon Bonaparte. You're on the Podcast Network. Listen. Learn. Evolve.